The Supreme Court has reached a decision on the landmark Roe v. Wade case. The ruling is on a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. It's considered the most direct challenge to Roe v. Wade in nearly 30 years. Some emboldened House Republicans want to take this one step further by pushing legislation to ban abortion at 15 weeks nationwide. This week, this is a major poll of OBGYNs in the country, two thirds of whom are saying Dobbs has eliminated their ability to make the best decisions for their patients. Patients often who have complicated pregnancies, miscarriages, ectopic pregnancies. Someone is going to die under my care. It's not going to be because they couldn't get an abortion. It's going to be because they couldn't get an abortion soon enough. And if we accept that a woman can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? The unborn are the most innocent and vulnerable members of our society. Pro-life conservatives are obsessed with the fetus from conception to nine months. After that, they don't want to know about you. No nothing. No neonatal care, no daycare, no Head Start, no school lunch, no food stamps, no welfare, no nothing. Welcome to our episode of Diagnosing Dilemmas. We are your hosts, Anita and Crystal. Joining us on this episode is Dr. Andrea Hinkle, a clinical assistant professor at Stanford University. After completing medical school at Georgetown University, she completed her residency in obstetrics and gynecology, fellowship in complex family planning, and master's program in epidemiology and clinical research at Stanford University. Her research interests focused on second trimester abortion, evidence-based policy and patient-centered equitable practices. She served as the ACOG California Junior Fellow Legislative Chair and now serves as an ACOG delegate to California Medical Association and on the ACOG National OBGYN PAC Governing Committee. Her advocacy work focuses on promoting equity to reproductive health access. Dr. Hinkle, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, of course. To get started and to center the patients involved in these conversations, we just want to learn more about the community that you serve of the individuals who are seeking an abortion. Can you give us a general idea of a typical patient? Sure. So statistically, the typical patient is already a parent. They typically are poor, living below the federal poverty line, are unmarried and in their late 20s. They typically have some college education and are typically very early in their pregnancy, usually around six or seven weeks. Okay. And there's a lot of rhetoric about what the typical patient seeking an abortion is like. As a physician, what are the, some of the greatest misconceptions about abortion that lawmakers or society has that you have a different perspective on? Oftentimes, lawmakers think that people seeking abortion care are irresponsible and it is their fault that they are in this situation. And oftentimes people are using contraception that failed, or this was an encounter that was not consensual that resulted in pregnancy. Or other times these are pregnancies that were really highly desired and something changed, whether uh, their own medical conditions got worse because of the pregnancy, or they learned about a new diagnosis in the pregnancy, such as a fetal anomaly. So I think that lawmakers don't have a lot of compassion for the unexpected in life. Yeah. 
That makes sense. And I know there's also different physicians who might be able to bring their own perspective. So Dr. Louise King and OBGYN in a Harvard Gazette interview said to contextualize what we ask of persons with uteri when we make abortion illegal, it's helpful to compare instances where we could ask people to undergo very risky procedures to help others. So for example, we don't demand that people give blood. It's not a big deal and it could save lives every day. But we don't demand that anybody donate blood or bone marrow. We don't demand kidney donations, which are less risky than childbirth nowadays. So what are your reflections on Dr. King's notion about what we ask when it does come to pregnant people? And who has that right to impose those demands? It seems in this country that we often think more about the fetus than we do about the person carrying the pregnancy. And pregnancy is not without risk. As an obstetrician, I see deliveries and pregnancy go really wrong, um, honestly, on a near daily basis. And I think that we forget that not all pregnancies result in a live birth that's a happy event. Um, and I think that often, we often forget that pregnancy can be scary and it is a big ask and people should opt into being pregnant. Just shifting from like this patient perspective, but also to now a physician one, there have been statistics out there that like only 15% of practicing OBGYNs provide abortion care. And so since physicians are allowed to choose what procedures they are comfortable performing in many fields, um, not just abortion, so for example, like organ transplantation, what is the proper balance between patient and provider autonomy? And do OBGYN residency programs still require this training for residents of how to provide abortion care? This is a complex issue. Uh, let me tackle a few of those questions. So currently, yes, all OBGYN residents are required to graduate with knowledge of how to provide how to, how to provide abortion care and how to manage complications. This doesn't mean that each individual must actually perform abortions, but everyone needs to be skilled in those procedures. And that's relatively easy to do because these are the same procedures we use to manage early pregnancy loss, uterine aspiration, and medical management. Um, so there are many ways to accomplish these same goals. Um, with regards to how many people actually perform abortion care after graduation, that is challenging because many people go on to subspecialize. Um, and so, you know, a urogynecologist or a GYN oncologist um, are not seeing this patient population. So I think that contributes to a low percentage. But also there are many barriers to actually performing um, abortion care in the office. Most notably, the mifepristone REMS requirement makes it challenging to stock mifepristone in clinic. And for later um, second trimester abortions, it requires a multi-day procedure. And many clinics are not set up to accommodate this on a timely basis because all abortion care is very time sensitive. Because of that, many people will refer to larger settings where these, these logistics have been sorted out so patients can receive that timely care. And then also in regards to residency programs, how does that work with like out-of-state versus in-state with the, the different legal restrictions? This is an evolving space right now um, in the last year. Uh, so right now we have many residents um, and residency programs that are establishing connections with uh, out-of-state residency programs or out-of-state clinics where trainees can still receive the same training. 
there's a heavier reliance on simulation to practice the skills so that even if their individuals are not performing as many procedures with simulation, they're able to uh, kind of perfect early on skills so that when they are doing it on patients, they're more prepared and more ready to make these valuable experiences. Um, but it's true that many people graduating OBGYN residency are going to be in these more restrictive states are going to be less prepared to manage these types of patients. And sometimes patients present where they urgently need the uterus evacuated. Um, and it, it is scary to think about what will be the next generation of OBGYNs and will people be ready to provide this care safely? Got it. Thank you for speaking on that. We also just wanted to ask, like, how has your medical practice changed post-Dobbs ruling personally? And how has the conversation that you have around abortion shifted for the experience for patients? So I see patients from out of state every single week that I provide abortion care, whether it's here at Stanford or at Planned Parenthood. And I know that the ones that I am seeing are just a small fraction of people who want this care. And these are people with means to be able to fly to California. I also am now more aware of when people are going home to a more hostile state that of the risk of complications. Abortion care is incredibly safe and complications are very rare, but it does feel harder to send them back to a space where they wouldn't be able to access care if needed if there was a complication. Additionally, I see a lot more people looking for either permanent or long-acting contraception, given concerns for the evolving reproductive health space. I've, I personally have seen a, an uptake of people looking for sterilization procedures who have never been pregnant or don't want to be pregnant in the future. And so that's taken up a lot more of our, our space. And it's clear that these are individuals who are very afraid of if they were to get pregnant accidentally, they wouldn't have access to abortion care in the future. Got it. And what does the legal landscape look like around like providing abortion care for people that are out of state? And if they have complications, can they still seek medical care even though the abortion has already been done? Or is that still kind of an evolving space that people don't really know how to navigate right now? It's a really challenging space. So first and foremost, abortion care is legal in California regardless of where patients is from. And really, I don't ask. I don't want to know where someone is from mm -hmm. because they are seeking legal care here and that's care that I know I can provide. But if they share where they're from, we think through um, what will be their um, plan in case they need follow-up care. All abortion care looks very similar to um, pregnancy loss. Um, so they can still present and talk about having a uterine aspiration or a dilation and evacuation or taking medications for pregnancy loss. And really there, there's no way to tell that if, you know, what was the indication after the fact. So I, I hope that people are still seeking care afterwards. Yeah. Kristen, I've had heard so many physicians, especially OBGYNs on this podcast, echo this sentiment that they are providing care in uncharted territory. Where it feels like in the 21st century, the purpose of the law is almost to create fear by making it so uncertain. So you sort of have to wait until someone gets in trouble until you know what the parameters of the law is. And so I'm just wondering, how do you navigate this ambiguity? 
I think that many of my colleagues in more hostile states have had to do a lot more of this than I have. And I have a lot of respect for people who are practicing in these gray zones on a daily basis and how scary and how, how hard that must be to make sure that you're still providing safe, compassionate care when um, you're unsure of your own legal status. For me here, we have been very thoughtful about how we document what we document, be, knowing that charts are visible elsewhere in the country. And that's been kind of the biggest change here in California. Yeah. And I know that also Epic is sort of a monopoly on open chart access. Do you have any hesitations about this? Sort of like knowing that everything is documented and, and how that might alienate some people who work in spaces where that is, isn't necessarily allowed. Yeah, it, it's really hard because we want to be able to communicate, you know, in any other medical procedure, I want to communicate to my colleagues. That's what the medical chart really is for, is a communication of here's what, ha here's what happened, here were complications, or here were the lack of complications, so that if a patient seeks follow-up care, the other provider understands what occurred. I have less hesitation practicing here of documenting what happened, but I don't put excessive details into the chart. It's kind of what happened and leave it relatively short. I think elsewhere in medicine, we tend to be relatively verbose and have much more of a narrative and try to minimize that in abortion care spaces at this point. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing that, like that sort of unique perspective as an OBGYN. And also let's just more broadly sort of to sum things up as a medical professional, part of your role is being a good communicator and you're on this podcast and sort of what we're doing now and to also prioritize patient needs. And so how do you approach this conversation of abortion and discussing this with people who have opposing opinions from you? Sort of first, both in a professional setting with patients and colleagues, then also like in a private one with family and friends. Yeah, I try to frame it as it's a life-saving role that I often play. It's not an exaggeration that I frequently provide care that is life-saving to the pregnant person by providing abortion care. For other medical professionals, it, it's typically easy if I'm talking to a cardiologist or a rheumatologist, they're very familiar with how pregnancy makes a condition much worse. And they've seen some of those extremes where really their life was in danger or even maternal mortality is resulting from a pregnancy with multiple medical comorbidities, you know, friends, family, non-medical folks. I, I try to highlight those in the many cases where we can just have a lot more compassion for people where these were desired pregnancies and remind them that they've never been in that situation to have to make that decision about a pregnancy and that probably many of their friends and family have had to make that choice. I say somewhere between one in four to one in three people with the uterus has had an abortion and just having compassion for those around us and knowing that we can't possibly fully understand someone's life without living it and wanting to make sure that this remains available for all people because we we know, you know, I, I really trust each individual person coming in saying that this is the best option for me. Yeah, thank you so much for talking a little bit on that. And when it comes to abortions versus medication managed abortions, could you talk a little bit about like the recent things we've seen about efforts to try to limit access to these medication abortions and pills? Sure. 
So medication abortion right now accounts for over 50% of abortion care in the United States. And the reasons for that are multifactorial. The first is that there are just a limited number of people who are trained to provide uterine aspiration procedures and many more people who can safely provide medication abortions. So sometimes it's just an access question. For other people, they really have a strong preference. They would rather have the privacy of experiencing the abortion at home compared to in a clinic. And for both of those reasons, I'm glad that medication abortion is available. Medication abortion has really always been very restricted and limited. With the FDA REMS, when it was first approved in the 90s, early 2000s, requiring that all providers are registered, that all patients sign a form, that it's dispensed in a clinic, that's what the original requirement. All of this was set to limit the number of people who actually were able to access abortion care. None of this was ever about safety, despite um, the FDA description of this. Um, and recent efforts um, coming out of Texas to restrict or take away the approval of mifepristone. We have millions of people who have used mifepristone at this point. We know it's incredibly safe. It is safer than many over-the-counter medications. And so it's just not an evidence-based claim, um, but this just goes back to restricting abortion care. If people can't seek abortion care with medication, they are going to be limited to just those who provided aspiration abortion. And we don't actually have enough providers and enough clinic spaces, enough time to care for everyone if it was only procedural. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for speaking on that. And just to like wrap up here, is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners or any final remarks that you have? I just wish more people and more trainees had access to seeing abortion care and hearing the stories. I think that people would have a lot more compassion for it. I'm really grateful that our Stanford students are able to rotate with us at Planned Parenthood. And the most frequent comment I get from our med students is, oh, is that it? Um, is, is that easy of a procedure? And know, many of them are very moved by the patient's stories and the complexities of their lives. And just the certainty that they have that this is the right thing for them. And I think that if our lawmakers, if the general public had that awareness, there would be more support for abortion care. Thank you so much, Dr. Hinkle. In this episode, we had the privilege of speaking with Dr. Andrea Hankel, delving into the contemporary landscape that physicians and patients navigate when it comes to abortions in a post-Dobbs reality. Our conversation dispelled common misconceptions about the typical abortion patient and the procedure itself, the future prospects of OBGYN training and residencies, transformative shifts in OBGYN medical practice post-Dobbs, and the urgent call for greater compassion and empathy towards individuals seeking abortion care. We hope you enjoyed this episode by Stanford Association for Medical Ethics and tune in for more.